But we want to continue on this morning in the book of Judges, and we're going to complete Judges chapter 9. So why don't we open up there to the book of Judges, and you can open up to chapter 9, and we're going to cover the remaining verses. We made it to verse 31, you may recall, Judges chapter 9. And last time we saw a tyrant had come to power in Shechem and the other towns in the surrounding area. His name was Abimelech, you may recall that. He was one of the sons of Gideon. And Abimelech killed his 69 brothers, one escaped named Jotham. And Jotham went up on Mount Gerizim and preached to the people of Shechem and then fled the area. Prophesied, preached. Three years passed while this tyrant ruled. And then God brought a spirit of ill will between the men of Shechem and Abimelech. You may recall all this. Then a man named Gaul came forward to challenge Abimelech's rule. He wasn't a good man either. He just didn't like the fact that Abimelech was ruling and wanted to challenge his rule. And we left off where Gaul and the men of Shechem were all drinking and bragging about toppling Abimelech and Zebel. Abimelech's governor of sorts there in Shechem didn't like it because Abimelech wasn't residing there at the time. So he sent word of warning to Abimelech. And we ended with verses 30 and 31, which says, When Zebel, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gaul, the son of Ebed, his anger was aroused. And he sent messengers to Abimelech secretly, saying, Take note, Gaul, the son of Ebed, and his brothers have come to Shechem. And here they are, fortifying the city against you. And this is where we'll pick up with the narrative. The title of my sermon this morning is The Justice of God and the Bad End of Tyrants. Uh, Why don't we stand we'll have a word of prayer. Father, we give thanks and we give praise to you for this time to open your word and to learn your ways and your thoughts. And Lord, we just ask and pray that you bless this sermon, that you use it for good in the hearts and minds of all the listeners. Be glorified through it, O Lord, as they apply it to their lives and live in obedience to you. May you be glorified in the earth. And Lord, we pray that many will confront the tyrants and tyranny and idols of our day through their faithfulness to you. And we ask this thing, these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Could be seated. Our passage today details the bad end of a tyrant. And we have already seen in this book of Judges the bad end of other tyrants, haven't we? You may recall Eglon, for example, Oreb, Zeb. In fact, the scriptures reveal the bad end of tyrants repeatedly, whether Pharaoh in the Old Testament or Herod in the New Testament, countless examples. And the history of men reveals even more countless examples of the bad end of tyrants. So our passage today details just one of many examples in Scripture regarding their bad end, the bad end of tyrants. And in verses 32 and 33, Zebel, who you may recall was one of the worthless men that Abimelech hired, his hired band of henchmen. Remember, he got the money given to him by the men of Shechem from the pagan temple of Baal Berith, that Zebel continues with his message of warning and suggested action to Abimelech, here in verses 32 and 33. 
And he says, now therefore, get up by night, that's what he's telling Abimelech, you and the people who are with you, and lie in wait in the field. And it shall be as soon as the sun is up in the morning that you shall rise early and rush upon the city. And when he and the people who are with him come out against you, talking about Gaul, you may then do to them as you find opportunity. It goes on in verse 33, and it says, And it shall be as soon as the sun is up in the morning. Pardon me, verse 34. So Abimelech and all the people who were with him rose by night and lay in wait against Shechem in four companies. When Gaul, the son of Ebed, went out and stood in the entrance to the city gate, Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from lying in wait. And when Gaul saw the people, he said to Zebel, Look, people are coming down from the tops of the mountains. But Zebel said to him, You see the shadows of the mountains as if they were men. So Zebel tries to deceive Gaul. He thinks he sees these men coming from a distance. He tries to deceive Gaul to give Abimelech more time to get closer and to give Gaul less time to prepare. Goes on in verse 37. So Gaul again spoke and said, See, people are coming down from the center of the land. And another company is coming down from the diviner's terebinth tree. Then Zebel said to him, Where indeed is your mouth now with which you said, Who is Abimelech, that we should serve him? Are not these the people whom you despised? Go out, if you will, and fight with him now. So Gaul went out, leading the men of Shechem, and fought with Abimelech. So Zebel goads Gaul into going out and fighting with Abimelech. And that was a bad, arrogant move militarily. But Gaul was full of arrogance, full of pride. And he had not taken time to prepare for battle properly. He did not prepare for a siege of the town, so he did go out. He did go out. This should remind us how we should not just throw in behind some hothead. Usually not wise to throw in behind a hothead. should remind us how there is a building of offenses and matters that must take place, a case laid out, offenses documented, preparations made when taking on a tyrant. Order and proper thinking matters. Biblical thinking and teaching matters. Something lacking among many Christians in our day due to the despicable condition of American churchmen. And here we see the end for Gaul is he's routed by the tyrant Abimelech. So our narrative continues in verse 40. And it says here, And Abimelech chased him, and he fled from him. And many fell wounded to the very entrance of the gate. Then Abimelech dwelt at Aramah, and Zebel drove out Gaul and his brothers so that they would not dwell in Shechem. So Gaul has to leave with his brothers. They're gone. And it came about on the next day that the people went out into the field and they told Abimelech. So he took his people, divided them into three companies and lay in wait in the field. And he looked out and there were the people coming out of the city. And he rose against them and attacked them. Then Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city and the other two companies rushed upon all who were in the fields and killed them. 
So Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He took the city and killed the people who were in it, and he demolished the city and sowed it with salt. So here we see the demise of the people of Shechem for joining under a tyrant. And as you can see, it didn't go well for them. And history is full of such examples, people unwittingly placing themselves in the hands of tyrants. And Americans have been busy doing that for the last several decades, and they've been doing it over the last year in alarming on steroids pace, willingly placing themselves under evil men, deluded. If God's judgment was based on how stupid or easily snookered a people are, Americans would suffer worse than Sodom. They love the tyrants, and they love their tyranny. They love the white coats invading their lives and love being dependent on men who exploit the white coats and the weakness of Americans for their own political ends. That is the vast majority of your fellow Americans, right there. As dumb as the men of Shechem. Just this past week, the Republican Senate here in our state of Wisconsin did not vote in favor of SB5. Rather, they defeated it. They vote in favor of SB4, which says the state cannot force us to get the COVID-19 vaccination. Fine. They voted in favor of SB7, which most all of the churchmen who came the day I was there to testify, that was the only one they testified in support of, which says that you can still have church if everybody doesn't have the COVID vaccine. Dumb as a box of rocks, always protecting their little hovels they call churches. But they didn't pass SB5, which would have said that your employer can't fire you if you don't get the vaccination. And I've told you again and again, that's often and mostly how tyranny works. It's not directly put upon you, it's put upon you indirectly. We live in a fascist hellhole where people have the idea that they're the owners. Well, they do. They're the owners. But they are so heavily regulated through licensure, regulation, bureaucracy, that they're really become just agents of the state. They've foisted all this masking upon us through the businesses. Employers making their employees wear the masks. Every retail operation in every state with signs saying, must wear the mask, and dopes walking in with their masks, not realizing that the only reason the guy, most of them, put the sign on the door was because they'll get in trouble from the government if they don't put the sign on the door. And that's why 99.9% of the time you walk into any business without a mask, nobody says anything to you. But they're aiding and abetting evil indirectly. And that's how they'll do it. You want to fly somewhere? You're not vaccinated? You're not flying. You want to work somewhere? You're not vaccinated? You're not going to work. You want to shop somewhere? You're not vaccinated? You're not going to shop. Oh, but they'll have curbside service for you. You can live like a leper and a second-class citizen and like a Jew with a star on your lapel. It's evil, it's wicked, and it's disturbing to watch. And instead of protecting us, the Republican Senate decided to sell us out. They sold us out other ways, too, by the way. When they finally toppled 
Governor Evers' emergency declaration two weeks ago, which they should have done 10 months ago, that very same day, they also sent a letter signed by 55 Assembly Republicans to Evers calling upon him to do these four things, which are part of AB1, which is another story of evil, and sell out by the Republican legislature here in Wisconsin. So while they're stopping his emergency declaration publicly, privately they send him this letter parlaying with him, hey, just go along with these things and we'll do it. Well, Evers didn't because he's a tyrant's tyrant. And so he didn't go along with it because the Republicans only wanted to sell us out with about 50% of what Evers wanted. And Evers wants 100%. Shechem was utterly destroyed, even salted, so nothing could grow there for a long time. In fact, the city wasn't rebuilt and re-inhabited until two centuries later, as is seen in 1 Kings 12.25. Now our narrative continues in verse 46, and it says, Now when all the men of that tower of Shechem had heard that, they entered the stronghold of the temple of the god Berith. So they had this huge tower in the midst of their city. It was like a citadel, your last holdout if you're attacked by enemy. So a bunch of them go up in there, about a thousand of them go up in this tower, men and women. And it was told Abimelech that all the men of the tower of Shechem were gathered together. Then Abimelech went up to Mount Zalman. He and all the people were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a bow from the trees and took it and laid it on his shoulder. Then he said to the people who were with him, What you have seen me do, make haste and do as I have done. So each of the people likewise cut down his own bow and followed Abimelech, put them against the stronghold, and set the stronghold on fire above them, so that all the people of the Tower of Shechem died, about a thousand men and women, killed in fire. Remember Jotham's prophecy that the bramble, which represented Abimelech, would use fire to destroy them. And here they are, destroyed by fire, with his tower, About a 1,000 men and women are now dead. Verse 50 says, Then Abimelech went to Thebes, and he encamped against Thebes and took it. That was another one of the towns that had come under Abimelech's rule. There were several of them, and they were obviously part of Shechem's rebellion against him. So he goes over there, and it says in verse 51, But there was a strong tower in the city, just like there was back over in Shechem. And all the men and women, all the people of the city, fled there and shut themselves in. Then they went up to the top of the tower. So Abimelech came as far as the tower and fought against it, and he drew near the door of the tower and burned it with fire. Again, the fire. He only knows how to destroy. Men like him only know how to destroy. Remember in our last sermon I talked about the men who took Seattle in our country during the summer. And I told my kids, who were still at home, I said to them, hey, you know what all these people in Seattle are doing now who took this six-block area? They're all thinking, now what do we do? Because all they know how to do is destroy. They know how to build anything. And that's what Abimelech was like. 
In verse 53, it says, But a certain woman dropped an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. That's a bad end. (laughs) That's a bad end. A millstone at this time was an easily held stone about 10 inches long, and it had some weight to it. It rolled back and forth over the larger lower millstone as the grain was crushed. This woman would have been well acquainted with such a millstone as it was the work of women to grind the wheat. She saw it as a potential weapon. And wow, was she a good shot. She hits Abimelech right on the head and crushes his skull. So first we had Jael with Caesarea, and now this unnamed woman here in the book of Judges. Such women, in my estimation, are wonderful. (laughs) And I've always said I would love to see my wife Clara, who is feisty and no doormat, arm wrestle Hillary Clinton. (laughs) That would be awesome. Dying at the hands of a woman is a disgrace. It was a disgrace then, so it says in verse 54, Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest men say of me, A woman killed him. So his young man thrust him through, and he died. Verse 55 says, And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, they departed every man to his place. Thus God repaid the wickedness of Abimelech, which he had done to his father by killing his 70 brothers. And all the evil of the men of Shechem God returned on their own heads, and on them that came to the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam. So God judges the tyrant, and he judges those who were good with living under his tyranny and wanted to rally to it. The people who rallied to the tyrant were judged, and so was the tyrant. And this is repeatedly seen in Scripture and in the history of men that tyrants come to a bad end. Now, I want to say some things about this matter of tyrants and tyranny in the remainder of my sermon. I first want to define the term tyrant and give you some of the history regarding the term, so don't fall asleep on me while I do this. We have people who visit sometimes, they're like, it's very cerebral here. I had one guy tell me, very cerebral. You have to actually think when, you, when you're preaching. What a novel thought, right? Like it only says, love the Lord your God with all your mind, you know. But yeah, most, yeah, it's sad. So anyway, yeah, so I hope you don't fall asleep while I'm doing this. I first want to define the term tyrant and give you some history regarding the term. And much of what I share is from Britannica. And I use their stuff because... It was a great summary of all my research. So Britannica says, Tyranny in the Greco-Roman world was an autocratic form of rule in which one individual exercised power without any legal restraint. In antiquity, the word tyrant was not necessarily a pejorative. In other words, it wasn't necessarily we're calling someone bad or putting them down, and signified the holder of absolute political power. In its modern usage, the word tyranny is usually pejorative and connotes the illegitimate possession or use of civil power. And I would add, an individual or government body of men can be a tyrant. Not just an individual, but also a government body of men. So this gives you a little idea of how the word 
tyrant, and tyranny transformed over the ages. For the ancient Greeks, a tyrant was not necessarily a bad ruler. In its original form, tyrannos, the word was used to describe a person who held absolute and personal power within a state. Some tyrants were usurpers who came to power by their own efforts. Others were elected to rule, and still others were imposed by intervention from outside. Where you put up a puppet regime. Later on in classical history, however, later on in classical history, however, the word gradually acquired more of its modern flavor, implying a ruler whose sole motivation was power and personal gain, and as a result, its use in public life became controversial. The idea of tyranny has been at the center of debate about legitimacy and rulership and the balance of power between ruler and the people. Since Roman times, philosophers have argued for the moral right of the citizen to overthrow a tyrant, whatever the law, and have debated the point at which monarchic rule becomes tyrannical. Now let me talk a little bit about tyranny in Rome, if I could. Roman attitudes toward tyranny were clear. Clear limits were set at the very beginning of Rome's finding, which was what? 509 B.C. That's when it supposedly officially started in their march to power and prestige. So there were these limits set on authority at the very beginning regarding magistrates. The dictatorship existed as only an emergency measure whereby one man could be appointed to overall power in the state, but it couldn't be held for more than six months, and only for emergency situation, six months. Sound a little familiar? By 133 B.C., the growth of the empire had changed Rome from a small city-state to a global power. And the conquest of Italy and the Mediterranean had created the conditions for individual generals to gain both enormous wealth through conquest, and a huge following among their soldiers, paving the way for them to seek personal power through military force. Generals began to use the dictatorship clause unconstitutionally to achieve domination. Sounds strangely familiar? Sulla was the first to take his army to Rome in 82, B.C., that was, after fighting a civil war and was elected to an indefinite dictatorship by a cowed Senate. Weak men, kind of like, oh, our Republican legislature here in Wisconsin. He chose to lay down the role and return to private life, but his example was noted by Julius Caesar, which is an interesting life to study. In 46 BC, Caesar also took an army into Italy and was made dictator, first for 10 years, and then in 44 BC, for life. That made him effectively a king, superior to all other magistrates, and not subject to their veto or appeal. And in that context, the idea of tyranny began to be discussed by historians and philosophers. Though you understand, the scriptures had addressed it long before that. Thinkers such as Cicero adopted the language of Greek tyranny to describe Caesar's position and debated the moral justification for tyrannicide. Remember, I did a sermon on tyrannicide several weeks back. If you didn't get to listen to it, I encourage you to listen to it, because most people, you say the word tyrannicide, and they just blink, blink at you. They have no idea what you're talking about, because most men have no interest in history or the affairs that have gone on in the history of men over the ages. 
As absolute rule became established in the Roman Empire, the terms of debate shifted, focusing on the question of when monarchic power became tyrannical in nature, because the emperor. From that springs the idea of tyranny in its modern sense, a situation in which the power of the ruler outweighs that of the ruled. That definition allows even a representative government to be labeled a tyranny. And we have long been there here in America. We have a tyranny for decades now in our nation. If you follow the history of Rome, it's remarkable how due to the nature of man we follow lockstep to their demise. In reality, tyranny is, as Salisbury said, quote, tyranny is abuse of power entrusted by God to man. Tyranny is abuse of power entrusted by God to man. One becomes a tyrant when one makes law contrary to God's law or when one exceeds the limits of civil government function. And that's massively important, part two of what I just said. When they exceed the limits of civil government function, they become tyrants because that is the tyranny that is upon us now. And so the churchmen quibble. Where does it say in the scriptures that if we're told to put a mask on, we can disobey? That's how pathetic they are. You have to realize when you live in a state as tell, people think the state can do anything, and most Americans do think the state can do anything. They have no idea. You know how many people I've given that little card to? Refusing to wear the mask reminds the state their authority has limits. That little card we put out, and people read it, and they're like, you can just see it. They have, don't have a clue what it even means. That's sad. Because they live in a state as hell, and they think the state can do anything. They cannot. They have a function given to them of God. The authority they wield is given to them of God. And if they go contrary to his law or word, or if they go outside the limitations of their function and role, they are to be withstood. And when the state wants to tell you to act like Jojo the circus monkey and stay six feet apart from people and put a dopey little mask on your face, yeah, that's something you shouldn't put up with because what they're teaching you is blithe compliance to the state. They are building their tyranny plank by plank, and it's getting stronger because of the indifference and accommodation to evil by Christian people. John of Salisbury really rightly pointed out in his work, Polycraticus, written in 1159 A.D., that when you look at the history of Rome, quote, more often than not, power was in the hands of bad men, unquote. And that would be true of human governments down through history. When you read the history of man and the history of government of men down through the ages, by and large, bad men have ruled. Bad men. And that, brothers and sisters, is why it's so important to bring Christian thought to bear upon civil authority. To bring Christian thought to bear upon civil government matters. And unfortunately, the churchmen have abandoned that realm for decades and decades and decades now 
so that a pastor is sitting in jail up in Canada for simply refusing to go along with the masking and six feet apart nonsense. There are consequences to be indifferent to what God's word has to say about civil authority from the pulpit. And we've begun to reap them, and rightly so. The sad thing is the best of men will end up in jail, and the worst of pastors and churchmen, they'll accommodate like the chameleons they are to anything the state puts out and comply. They actually at that point become agents of the state. They're helping tyrants foment their tyranny by going along with the evil and hiding behind an abuse of scripture and hermeneutic in order to justify their blithe compliance. The scriptures are clear that God at times uses tyrants for his purposes in the earth. That is a fact. The scriptures are clear that God at times uses tyrants for his purposes in the earth. When a nation's sins are great, when those who name his name are in sin or drunk on wealth and ease, God will use tyrants for his purposes. To judge a nation, to judge and chastise his people, like in our day with the white coats being used by the government officials to tyrannize us all. It is important to understand, first off, that we and our nation are deserving of this because our nation's sins are great. We must acknowledge that. We must understand that. That first off, we and our nation are deserving of this evil because our nation's sins are great. And the indifference of his people, God's people, to all the evil is immense. John of Salisbury said this of sin. He said, quote, For the sins of transgressors are the strength of tyrants. Unquote. A mother during the American Revolution named Lydia Gray wrote to her son in the colonial army on July 31st, 1775, and said this, quote, I am more afraid of our sins than all the forces of our enemy. Unquote. God uses tyrants to address sin. This is seen time and time again in Scripture. Understand also, that does not mean we do not speak out or stand against the tyrants and their tyranny. When evil is in the land, we recognize God's righteous judgment, but that does not mean we do not speak or act against it, against the evil of the tyrants. We see the prophets, we see God's people, we see Jesus himself, and we see the saints down through history speak and act against the tyranny of tyrants. Jonas Clark, in a sermon he preached on the one-year anniversary of the shot heard round the world, April 19, 1776, entitled The Fate of Bloodthirsty Oppressors and God's Tender Care of His Distressed People. That was the name of his sermon. Pretty long. That sermon, by the way, is available at mercyseat.net, our church website, if you want to read his sermon. The fate of bloodthirsty oppressors and God's tender care of his distressed people. In that sermon, he stated the following. He said, however unjust our sufferings may be from man, yet when we realize the hand of God, the great and wise governor of the world as concerned herein, 
Silence and submission is our indispensable duty, and no murmur or complaint ought ever to be heard, but with reverence and humility it becomes us to bow before the Lord and adoring his sovereignty ascribe righteousness to our God. He's saying you don't complain about the judgment that is upon you, like a little child. You don't complain about it. You understand it's just. His judgment in our land today is just. And he's working it for his ends, both among his people and the people of our nation. Understand that. Jonas Clark goes on to state the following after stating that, however. And he says, however, just it may be in God to correct his people, and whatever right is ascribed to him of improving the wicked. Improving the wicked. I love that term. I preached about that several years ago, how God seems to bless the wicked when he brings his judgment on a land. However just it may be in God to correct his people and whatever right is ascribed to him of improving the wicked as the rod in his hand to correct or the sword to punish them, yet this alters not the nature of their oppressive designs Neither does it abate their guilt or alleviate their crime in these measures of injustice, violence, or cruelty by which the people of God are distressed. Thus God speaks of the Assyrian king, a prince noted in history for his avarice and ambition, cruelty and oppression, saying, O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger and the staff and Their hand is mine indignation. I will send him to an hypocritical nation, and to the people of my wrath will I give him a charge to take the spoil and to take the prey and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Howbeit he meaneth not so, neither doth his heart think so, but it is in his heart to destroy. This is God speaking about the Assyrian king, how he's going to use him for his purposes in bringing judgment. Wherefore, it shall come to pass that when the Lord hath performed his whole work upon Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, I will punish the fruit of the stout heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his high looks. That's Isaiah chapter 10. God uses tyrants for his purposes in the earth, and when he's done using them, he judges them. That is a biblical fact. And we're going to talk about the importance of repentance here shortly. Because that's huge to seeing tyrants deposed. One other thing I want to throw in here, and it's like a big parenthesis, which I debated whether I should even put in or not. And maybe when I edit this sermon, I'll take it all out. Another thought regarding this matter of tyrants is that when you look at the history of them, you'll notice the lesser magistrates and their involvement in the deposing of tyrants. Sometimes it's directly from God, removing the tyrants, like Herod getting all the worms, right? He's dead. But often God uses the hand of man as his instrument to depose tyrants, and often he'll use the lesser magistrates themselves to depose tyrants. Scriptures has many stories like this, like Athalia and Jezebel being two examples deposed by lesser magistrates. And in the history of men, countless upon countless examples, I will just mention two, Caligula and Nero. Okay? I know Adolf Hitler, I'm not going to talk about him. I know he's the only guy who's in hell. At least if you go to the university, that's what all the students will tell you. 
There's only one guy who was really bad. That was Adolf Hitler. He'll go to hell. But we're pretty good. <laughs> so. If you read the history of Caligula and Nero and the evil they did and the tyranny they fomented, you'll realize, no, they're in hell too. And if you read the scriptures, you realize everyone's headed to hell unless they turn from their sin and believe in Jesus Christ. Amen? Because we're all wicked. Caligula was tyranny personified, and it was the interposition of the lesser magistrates that stopped him. Remember? His own Praetorian guard killed him. Remember he was messing with the Jews, and all of a sudden he's dead. (laughs) Never got to put that statue up in Jerusalem. There have been countless historians, including all the way back contemporaries of that time, who detailed the evil and tyranny of Caligula. Are you familiar with this tyranny? Are you familiar with this evil? If not, duck, duck, go it and look it up. Do a little reading. I will not spoon feed you the tyranny of Caligula this morning. Read on your own, learn. History is important. I don't know how people can be indifferent to history. I get sucked in any historical account. It could be somebody talking about how their house was run 700 years ago, and I'm sucked in. You know, It could be about governments changing hands. I'm sucked in. <laughs> it's like I love history. But some are not, but you need to be. History is important. His evil, Caligula's evil, was massive, and all the evil he did was stopped by the interposition of lesser magistrates. Caligula came to a bad end. He was a tyrant who came to a bad end. And his nephew Nero, who came to power after Claudius, even more evil. More evil. He was less organized in his tyranny than Caligula was, but he was more vicious in his tyranny. And he too came to a bad end. And as it was with Caligula, it was the lesser magistrates that ended his tyranny. In March of 68, Gaius Vindex, governor of Gallia, and Servius Galba, governor of Hispania, he had later become the emperor, rebelled against Nero. Things didn't go all that well for the lesser magistrates at first. In fact, Vindex committed suicide. It's not always roses and parades for the lesser magistrate who stands against evil. Sometimes it's death. But after this, the prefect of the Praetorian Guard came out in support of Galba. It was kind of like when the Illinois State Police came out in support of Madison County, Illinois, against the evil of their governor. In response to this, because Nero knew it was bad, Nero fled Rome with the intention of going to the port of Ostia. Me and Clara have walked the streets of Ostia. It's better than Pompeii. The whole town has just left how it was. It was never covered up with ashes, and it's still there today. The amphitheater built by Titus, everything's there. If you ever make it there, you have to go to Ostia. So it's about 12 miles outside of Rome. It was the port town where the ships would come, and they'd bring in all their stuff to the city so people could eat and live and buy clothes and all that other stuff that people do. So his intention was going to the port of Ostia and from there to take a fleet to one of the still loyal eastern provinces. According to Suetonius, one of the historians, Nero abandoned the idea when some officers 
army officers openly refused to obey his commands. He realized then, oh my word, this is, I'm in trouble. He responded to that, by the way, by saying, is it so dreadful a thing to die? He went through all these contortions about dying over the next 48 hours. Nero returned to Rome and spent the evening in the palace. After sleeping, he awoke about midnight to find the palace guard had left. Dispassing messages to his friends, palace chambers, for them to come, he received no answers. Everyone's left him. Upon going to their chambers personally, he found them all abandoned. When he called for a gladiator or anyone else adept with a sword to kill him, no one appeared, and Nero cried out, quote, Have I neither friend nor foe? And then he ran out thinking he would throw himself into the Tiber River, which was close at hand. But he couldn't go through with it. He didn't have the guts for it. Returning, Nero sought a place where he could hide and collect his thoughts. An imperial freedman, Phaon, offered his villa located four miles outside the city, traveling in disguise. This is the one thing you see with tyrants over the years, dressing as women and other things to get away with their tyranny. One of the Roman emperors actually died in a spider hole, just like Saddam Hussein. (laughs) It's a bad end for tyrants, bad end. So he travels in disguise with four loyal freedmen and reached the villa, and there Nero ordered them to dig a grave for him. At this time, a courier arrived with a report that the Senate had declared Nero a public enemy and that it was their intention to execute him by beating him to death. So the lesser magistrates have arrived on the scene in so many forms, the governors, actual soldiers, Praetorian guard, head of the Praetorian Guard, the prefect, and now the Senate itself all coming against this tyrant. It's part of the bad end for Nero. So they're going to beat him to death, and that armed men have been sent to apprehend him for the act to take place in the Roman Forum. One historian notes, the Senate actually was still reluctant and deliberating on the right course of action, as Nero was the last member of the Julio-Claudian family. He's the last one. You know why he was the last one? Because they were all busy like good Americans, committing familial suicide, not having sons and daughters so they could pursue wealth and ease. So the Senate's like, well, who's going to take over if we kill him? Indeed, most of the senators had served the imperial family all their lives and felt a sense of loyalty to the deified bloodline, if not to Nero himself. The men actually had the goal of returning Nero back to the Senate, where the Senate hoped to work out a compromise with the rebelling governors... That would preserve Nero's life so that at least a future heir to the dynasty could be produced. Nero, however, did not know this. And at the news brought by the courier, prepared himself for suicide, pacing up and down, muttering, what an artist dies in me. (laughs) Losing his nerve, he begged one of his companions to set an example by killing himself first. (laughs) Nobody volunteered. (laughs) At last, the sound of approaching horsemen drove Nero to face the end. However, he still could not bring himself to take his own life, but instead forced his private secretary, Epaphroditus, to perform the task. Though some historians say he did take his own life. When one of the horsemen entered and saw that Nero was dying, he attempted to stop the bleeding, but efforts to save Nero's life were unsuccessful. Nero's final words were, too late, this is fidelity. He finally had the strength to die. That's what he meant by fidelity. And too late for you to kill me. 
He died on June 9th, year 68 A.D. Here is the bad end of another tyrant. And the hand of the lesser magistrates were involved in it. Go share that story with the Republican legislature here in Wisconsin. Maybe they'll buck up a little bit, right? All they have to do is issue law, act like men, and put something on paper, and actually track down a tyrant and finish him off in the street somewhere. With Nero's death, the Julio-Claudio dynasty ended. Familial suicide had been finalized. When news of his death reached Rome, the Senate posthumously declared Nero a public enemy to appease the coming Galba and proclaimed Galba as the new emperor. The result was bloody civil war ensued for the next two years and tens of thousands were killed. The longer you allow tyranny to fester, the harder it is to root it out. The longer you allow tyranny to fester, the harder it is to root it out. And remember, their end came like Herod, messing with God's people, Caligula when he was messing with the Jews, and Nero when he was messing with the Christians. Tyrants come to a bad end. That doesn't mean all do. Some will be recompensed on the other side. But their bad end is seen time and time again in this life. And listen, God uses oppressions to help us see what is good and important in life. God uses oppressions to help us see what is good and important in life and to make it incumbent upon us to establish just governments in the land. Both the anarchists and volunteerists on one side who want no government, and did you notice you hear little from that quarter since all this COVID evil has been unleashed? And that's because most of them have sided with the tyrants because they fear death from the virus. Both the anarchists and volunteers on one side who want no government and the leftists and Marxists on the other side who want us all to live in a status hell are both wrong. The truth is civil government is needed and necessary because of the nature of man. And the truth is also that it has a limited function as given by God. And we as Christian men have a duty to establish and uphold just and proper government. That is the duty of Christian men. The government and its officials do not possess unlimited power. As Christians, we are to act contrary to them when they make law contrary to God's law or word, or make law or policy or court opinion outside of their limitations. But God also checks lawless government and its officials by bringing them down. The scriptures reveal the bad end of tyrants, and history bears this out also. And I'll close with this. Our government is a tyrant. The United States federal government is a tyrant. The state governments are playing the tyrant. County governments are playing the tyrant. If you doubt that our government is a tyrant, 
You should consider the fortress-like nature of D.C. with its razor wire and 12-foot-high fences and thousands of soldiers standing there by the Potomac. John Ponet, Protestant churchman, Bishop of Winchester, in his short work, A Short Treatise of Political Power and of the True Obedience which subjects owe to their kings and civil governors, written in 1556, which you can also read at mercyseat.net, our church website. The very nature of how they've become, our government officials, reveals the tyrants they are. Here's what Ponet said, quote, and besides this, when they saw that tyrants used to have their bodies defended with garrisons and guards of foreign people or kept themselves in strongholds and secret chambers so as none without great hazards and peril might come near them, they propounded great rewards to him that should destroy a tyrant, unquote. Our government is a tyrant. And one of the most needed things for us to understand in the midst of that is our need to repent. We've all been impacted by this culture in some ways. If you have secret sin in your life, repent of it, turn from it. If you're drunk on materialism and ease, entertainment, repent of it. There are more things that are important at hand. I want to read something else Jonas Clark said in his sermon on the fate of bloodthirsty oppressors and God's tender care of his distressed people. He said, now of this, God hath given his people the strongest assurances in the prophecy before us, and these assurances are confirmed by the word of God to his people through the sacred scriptures. So that, though for their sins and the multitude of their transgressions, a righteous God may justly afflict and correct his people by the hand of oppressors and permit their most important rights to be violated, their substance destroyed, their habitations to be laid waste, or even the innocent blood of their brethren to be wantonly shed in their land. Yet still he is their God in the midst of them, and will readily appear for their help when they return from their evil ways, acknowledge his hand, and implore his mercy and assistance. Amen. We must do right before him and repent of anything we need to repent of. We must call the magistrates of our nation and the people of this nation to repentance. We must declare the law of God his word, and his great salvation to men. These are the things needed in this day, greatly needed in this day. John of Salisbury summarized well by stating, quote, for tyrants are demanded, introduced, and raised to power by sin and are excluded, blotted out, and destroyed by repentance, unquote. And so I say to you, brothers and sisters, let us repent. Prepare to defend your homes. Prepare to coalesce with good men for a fight that may break out in God's mercy. 
to free us of tyrants. Prepare. Do that. Do not neglect that. But three great duties you have is one is to bring Christian thought to bear on civil government matters. To speak to the magistrates and the people of the land regarding good government, what its role, function, and limitations are. And secondly, repent. Repent of anything in your life you need to repent of. Turn from it. And then call this nation to repentance. Do it through social media. Do it on the street corner. Do it at school board meetings, county meetings, legislative halls. Do it everywhere where men gather. And preach. Raise up your voice and declare his law, word, and gospel to men. And then we may see the Lord bring tyrants to a bad end here in this nation. May Christ be praised. Let's stand up and we'll close in prayer. Hallelujah, Father. We love you, O God, and we thank you for your goodness to us that we have your scriptures, that you preserve them down through the ages so that we can study them, so we can know your ways and your thoughts. Apply them to our lives. Live in obedience to them. Point other men to them, O God. Lord, may we be bold by the power of your Holy Spirit. Empower us by your Spirit, O God, to be your ambassadors in the earth, making your holy law, your word, and your great salvation known to men. May we not keep these things to ourselves. May we engage those in rebellion to you. May we not fear them, O God. May we not fear man. May we fear you. May our love be for you. May we have a strong hatred of evil, O God. And Lord, we look to you to do a great work in our land even now when all we see is blithe compliance to tyrants, weak churchmen filling pulpits, pouring false balm onto the wool of your sheep, O God, telling them peace, peace when there is no peace. Watchmen who cannot bark, little own bite. And Lord, we look to you, O God, in the midst of this downtrodden state for us to draw close to you and to follow after you to do right in the sight of you as an individual, do right by you in our homes, and to do right by you in the marketplace and in the workplace, O oh Lord. Give us strength of heart, strength of mind. Give us a hunger for you, O oh Lord, both individually and corporately. Give us a hunger for you desiring to live for you, making our days count in the earth. We pray for our brother up in Canada in chains and bonds, O oh God, for his faithfulness to you. Use his faithfulness to the glory of your name to strike fear in the hearts of the tyrants, to give boldness to any churchman who still has even an inkling of fealty to you left in him, O oh God. We look to you, O oh Lord, and we beseech you for these things. May we gather in our homes as families and cry out to you, learn from your word together, speak of the things of you, 
Bring thoughts to our mind that we can do, O Lord, in the midst of this evil. Use us for some sound, awesome purpose in the earth in this hour, which will bring glory to you and to your name. We love you and we thank you for your goodness to us, Father. And we ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hallelujah.